You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. So good to be here with you guys uh, this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tamarcus Raglan. I'm the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. Um, The last time I was here with you guys, uh, we were waiting for a precious little girl to be here, and we just got done celebrating three months of her being here, and so super excited about that. Uh, Yes, and her brother Taj just being a crazy, awesome big brother. Um, But today we are going to continue to consider um, another aspect of the hidden life in Matthew chapter 6. As you get your attention there, I want to share a story in a a book I read last year by a guy named Seth Godin. He's an entrepreneur and like guru of all things marketing. He wrote a book called This is Marketing. It's really good. And in it, he tells a story about how there was an occasion where he was partnering with a company uh, that was trying to produce eyeglasses at a very low cost to give to communities around the world um, that could not otherwise afforded and that were, you know, pretty impoverished. In this particular community that they were dealing with at this time, uh, a lot of the people were impoverished and were unable to work because of their um, inability to see. So getting a pair of glasses would have meant a drastic change in their life. And so they went to the community and set up their booths and they laid out the glasses all before the people um, to try to get them to buy a pair, and they would show them all the different styles and shapes that they had and would let them try them and tell them how you know, cool and awesome they looked and how they made them. And what they found was only a third of the people actually purchased the glasses. Golden exclaimed, he said, I was stunned that 65% of the people who needed glasses, who knew that they needed glasses, and they even had the money to buy them, would just walk away. So he switched the approach. He says, here's what I did. I took all the glasses off the table. And for the rest of the people in the line, we said, here are your new pair of glasses. And they would put them on. And he says, if they work and you like them, you can give us $3 and you can keep them for the rest of your life. If you don't, then we'll take them back. He says 70% of the people bought glasses after he changed his pitch. It was after he removed the clutter of options that were laid before them on the table, um, after he abandoned the vain appeal to fashion um, and style that they were trying to use to sell them before and simply gave them the glasses and essentially said, if you value the way you see the world now more than you did before, give us $3 and you can keep these forever. At first, the majority of the people valued the money they had more than they valued the idea of style and the idea of sight, but once they were able to experience the benefit and put on a single pair of glasses for themselves, they were willing to give up the money in order to keep this new gained sight. Over the past couple weeks, right, Jamin has shaped our time in this chapter by two statements. He said, we will not become like Jesus without spending time with God, and we will not spend time with God if we don't make time for God. And this morning, we will be looking at Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18 to unpack how this truth applies to the discipline of fasting. In many ways, our modern understanding of fasting can run the risk of missing the greater invitation of the practice, right? 
Like oftentimes when I hear about fasting today, we think about it maybe in the context of health and fitness, right, and intermittent fasting. And that's great. Um, dieting and taking care of our bodies, right, that God has blessed us with is a way that we exercise stewardship. However, the kind of fasting that Jesus is going to talk to us about in this passage um, seeks a drastically different end. Other times we hear about fasting, right, within um, the church, and it can be seen as just a legalistic task that people do in order to seem holier than thou before other men. But again, the kind of fasting that Jesus is going to promote in our passage today seeks a drastically different end. Here, if I can build on the foundation that has been laid before us in this chapter to frame what's at stake in the kind of fasting that Jesus promotes, I'd say, right, we will not become like Jesus without spending time with God. And we will not spend time with God if we don't make time for God. But then I'd add, and we won't make time for God if we desire lesser things more. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, describes this tension in our hearts this way. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of those rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offering of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis reveals that our problem is not that our affections and passions are too strong, but that we seek to satisfy them in the wrong places. Our insatiable desire is not the problem, but when we seek to satisfy them in things that are lesser, that becomes a problem. If you're like me, I often find myself spending so much time snacking on the lesser things in this world that I often lose my appetite for true food. And this is where fasting comes in for us. If I could describe it in two sentences, fasting is saying no to our bellies so that we can say yes to God. It is giving up something you need so that you can relish the one you need most. It is giving up something you need so you can relish the one you need most. There are times where we can find ourselves like those in the, in the story that I told, right, who are turning down the opportunity to see because we don't realize its true benefit. Or like the ignorant child that Lewis describes who is too easily satisfied with mud pies to experience the glory and beauty of the sea. And what fasting does is it helps us to see that the mud is mud. And it simultaneously creates a longing and hunger and thirst for God within us. If we look at verse 16 and the beginning of 17, Jesus begins both statements by saying, and when you fast, right, the first thing to note about what Jesus is doing here is that he has an assumption that the people are already partaking in this practice. His audience not only knows what fasting is, but they are already participants of it. So he doesn't spend too much time describing what it is, but how they ought to do it rightly. An old basketball coach of mine, um, we were doing pretty poorly in practice one day, and he said, you know, you don't teach a boxer how to fight. He said, you teach a fighter how to box. 
And the first one he said, that, I was like, what does that have to do with basketball? Um, but what he was trying to communicate to us was that those who really love the game of basketball, right, those who, who love the game for what it's worth, basketball is a natural routine of their life. They don't just practice when it's time to practice in the gym, but they do so on their own when nobody's looking, right? Nobody's telling them to wake up in the morning and work out so that they can keep their bodies in shape. Nobody's telling them to go to the gym and put shots up so that they can get their rhythm down, right? Or work on their ball handling. These are just things that are already a part of their routine, right? Because for real basketball players, ball is life, right? Uh, and all the basketball players said amen. <laughs> Likewise, Jesus is making an assumption about his audience. He is assuming that fasting is already a part of their routine. And like a coach, his goal is to elevate their level of play by showing them how to fast rightly. However, for us, right, we are far removed from the culture of Jesus's original audience. And rather than being immersed in a culture that at least claims to hold temperance as a cardinal virtue, we live in a society that elevates hedonism and consumerism. One that says pleasure is the highest good and one should consume as much as his heart desires, right? The pleasure principle rules. On one side of that coin, we are plagued by excess. We can easily overindulge in food to the point of gluttony or even indulge in food to pour in such as to alleviate our stress and our anxiety to fill a void within us. Of course, the spirit of excess doesn't stop here. It also peaks its head as materialism, promoting that if I could just incur more stuff, then I could be satisfied. Or maybe it's in sex, or maybe it's in power, or maybe it's even leisure. Whatever the fix is, our culture has taught us that you can never have too much of the stuff you want. But on the same side, on the other side of that same coin, in the spirit of physical appearance, we can make idols of our bodies and chase unrealistic and unhealthy standards of beauty through excessive dieting and training. Again, exercise and healthy eating are great things, and if we're not careful, they can become harmful. We can be constantly bombarded by over-sexualized and unreal images through movies and social media and the like, and as a result, we begin to adopt those lies as our standards for beauty and significance. The story the world gives us about our bodies fail to recognize the beauty and uniqueness of different body types, of metabolisms and ethnicities. And as a result of these poor stories that we receive from our culture about our bodies, many can be left feeling unworthy and even insignificant. Before we can continue, I want to just take some time to, to acknowledge those in the room who have eating disorders as a part of your story. I know a topic like fasting could land in uncomfortable ways, but I want you to know today that, that God sees you, that he knows you, and that he redeems what the enemy steals, and that there is a mass amount of freedom and grace to be yours when it comes to fasting. And as you consider this morning what this could look like in your life, I encourage you to lean on godly counsel in your life to help you walk in wisdom through this practice, right? And where, wherever any of us land in this conversation, the common denominator for us all is that our culture has made master of the body. And not only does it make a poor master, 
but it's a confusing one, right? Like, on one side, I want myself to look like Dwayne Johnson, and on the other side, I want to eat food at all hours of the day, right? I want to I be active and entrepreneurial, and yet also want to oversleep and hit the snooze once or twice, sometimes three times, right? Um, and it, it wants to have intimacy with God, but it also wants to flirt with the created things in this world. Our bodies are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made, but they were never meant to be our masters. So if our culture has become so far removed from the biblical narrative, how can we begin to grasp the meaning and purpose of fasting as Jesus has taught? Um, St. Basil the Great was a church father and leader in the church after the time of the apostles. And in a sermon that he wrote on fasting, he describes it this way. He says that while getting filled up does a favor for the stomach, fasting returns benefit to the soul. Be encouraged because the doctor has given you a powerful remedy for sin. Strong, powerful medicines can rid of annoying worms that are living in the bowels of children. But fasting is like that. As it cuts down to the depths, venturing into the soul to kill sin, it is truly fitting to be called by this honorable name of medicine. In a society filled with confusion concerning body image and inordinate desires, fasting has been passed down as a gift and a remedy to help cleanse the body of these desires. First, whenever we see fasting in the Bible, it is always in reference to abstaining from food and drink. This is not to dismiss all other forms of abstinence. In fact, the Bible makes mention of abstaining from numerous things, from alcohol to sex to other activities, to cultivate temperance and free the believer to focus on higher things. There's certainly merit even for us to abstain from rather be TV or social media or, you know, I hate to say, but caffeine, right? Those of you know I love coffee. It's a conflict of interest there. But these things, too, are of merit for cultivating temperance. But just as Sabbath is a specific kind of abstinence and chastity is a specific kind of abstinence, fasting, too, is a specific kind of abstinence. Second, fasting is not something that is done out of disdain for our bodies, but rather something that is done to aid it. Our bodies are temples of the Lord, and we are called to steward them. And fasting is actually a way that we are able to care for the bodies most sacred part, which is the soul. If it is a physical practice, right, especially for us kinesthetic learners, right, that shifts our gaze from physical desires to spiritual ones. Third, God's invitation in the scriptures to fast is twofold. There is a time to fast, but there is also a time to feast. In fact, God gave us freedom to feast before ever asking us to fast. In Acts 27, when Paul is aboard a ship during a great storm, the men sailing with him hadn't eaten in 14 days. And Paul tells them, he says, you have continued in suspense and without food, but now I urge you take some food. You need it to survive, right? Like there's a, there's a time in which it is, it is needed that we partake in food. Likewise, in the gospel, Jesus is even questioned by John the Baptist's disciples concerning a particular fast, and they say, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Right. Sometimes celebrating the goodness of the Lord over a good meal is the most spiritual and godly thing that we can do. So we don't abstain from food to harm the body, but to care for it. And we don't feast to fill a void, but because we are already full. Fasting and feasting bring balance to one another in God's economy. And we actually find the origins of what this gift was meant to be in the very beginning, right? God placed our first parents in a good garden, in the midst of a good world that was filled with good things. And yet he gave them a prohibition. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why this tree? Was it inherently evil? When God finished creating and called all that he made very good, did he forget about this one tree that he made? No, right? The prohibition had little to do with the tree and everything to do with the human heart. Though we are created in the image of God, endowed with a mind and soul like animals often, we are predisposed to just worship our instincts in our belly. If what we see happening in the garden is God saying this tree was bad and the serpent saying this tree is good and Eve being deceived to think that the tree is good, then we miss what the prohibition was about. God knows that the fruit on the tree was good. He made it that way. What he was after was the fidelity of Adam and Eve's heart. It wasn't about the tree being bad, but about God being better. He wanted Adam and Eve to desire intimacy with him and to look to him to be filled rather than trying to fill themselves. He wanted them to say no to their belly so that they could say yes to him. What the desires of the flesh cost us in the garden was greater sustaining intimacy with God. And this is exactly what Jesus is inviting us into, right? A greater sustaining intimacy with God. He demonstrated this for us, right? Before Jesus was tempted by the devil in the Gospels, the Bible says that he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights and that he was hungry, right? His belly was empty. And oftentimes... Right. I've heard these, this passage talked about and we think, man, he must have been so weak and so easily tempted at this point in time. And that couldn't be far from the truth. Right. Because even though he was hungry and his belly was empty. Right. Remember, while being filled does a favor for the stomach, fasting returns benefits to the soul. He faced the devil empty in his stomach, but filled with the spirit. And his flesh may have been weak, but his spirit was strong. So when he was told, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. He responds, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Church, we can't miss it. It is not the same temptation that our first parents received. The devil was not questioning whether Jesus was the son of God. He was assuming it. And as the son of God, the devil wanted Jesus to act on his own accord as opposed to the will of his father. But Jesus, he saw this. Right. The devil was basically telling Jesus, you were God in the flesh. You have the power to sustain yourself. Turn these rocks into bread. You can do this on your own. But unlike our first parents, Jesus refused to give in to that temptation. Why? 
Was it because he wasn't really hungry? No, of course he was hungry, but he desired and enjoyed intimacy with his father more than he did his daily bread. That might suggest why he would say earlier in this very book, blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because fasting is saying no to your belly so that you can say yes to God. It is giving up something you need so that you can relish the one you need most. This is what the practice of fasting was meant to be and what it looks like. And if we hold this in view, we can make more sense of what Jesus is trying to tell us next. Look at verse 16. He says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What might Jesus mean by fasting hypocritically? Why is desiring our fasting to be seen by others considered hypocritical? Didn't he just tell us a chapter ago that in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven? Here's what he didn't mean. What he doesn't mean is that if someone finds out that you're fasting, that you just automatically failed, right? Like the point of of fasting is not to play a spiritual game of keep away, right? There may be a, a legitimate time or concern with someone in your life. Maybe they just, they've noticed that you haven't eaten in a while and they're just genuinely concerned, you might tell them, hey, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I've just, I've been fasting for a couple days, right? That doesn't, that doesn't taint the nature of your fast. Also, he's not denouncing communal fast, right? In a case where um, a bunch of people are fasting together and know about it. In fact, there are numerous occasions within the Bible that God honors a communal fast, right? In in Ezra, right, he declared a fast for all the people to humble themselves before God and to seek him the right way, and God honored their fast. In the book of Jonah, right, after he gives the the one-sentence sermon uh, and changes the, the king of Nineveh's heart, it says that he commanded that there be a nationwide fast to repent of their sins, and it says that God relented his wrath from the people. Likewise, in Acts, we see on multiple occasions that the apostles fasted together and the Lord responded to their prayers. What Jesus is trying to uproot in this passage, keeping in step with the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, is that the insincerity of the heart in the one fasting is the problem. If when you fast, individually or communally, your validation comes from being seen, if all you want is, is hoping that someone would notice how committed and faithful you're being by practicing your fast. If you take the entire time making your face gloomy and complaining and never does it shift your eyes upward towards the Father, Jesus says, you've already received your reward. John Piper preached a sermon on this passage and he said, the danger of fasting like the hypocrites is that it works. Right? If, if what you want in your fast is for people to notice your righteousness, you'll get it but that's all you get, right? Because if, if fasting is giving up something you need to relish the one you need most, then if you fast to be seen, it is hypocritical because what you're saying with your actions is I want God, right? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing that I desire besides you. I do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And yet in the quiet of your heart, what you actually whisper is, but actually I just want to please people. I want to I be seen. 
Do you not see how misleading this is, right? Our actions and our heart become misaligned. This is the same kind of fasting God condemned during the days of the prophet Isaiah. The people had committed to a fast and they asked, why have we fasted and you've not seen? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God responded, behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. See, fasting is saying no to the belly to say yes to God. But if you are still saying yes to your flesh, you may not be eating or drinking water, but you have yet to truly partake in the food that God has to offer. You cannot relish in the presence of God and go about unchanged. But Jesus doesn't stop here, right? He gives us the true path and manner of fasting in verses 17 through 18. Look at verse 17. He says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus gives us the recipe for righteous fasting. And I want to unpack it by showing how fasting situates us in God's story properly. Right? For those of us who have been redeemed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who have been filled and sealed by his Holy Spirit as a promise of sanctification and a future glorification, who are destined to live eternally in perfect fellowship with our Lord when his plan to bring his kingdom here is fully realized. On that day, every day forward shall be filled with a perpetual feast. We'll say, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? This is what we have to look forward to as the people of God. But today, we're not quite all the way there yet. We're in a world in which the kingdom of God is definitely breaking in like the sun at dawn, but high noon is yet to arrive. There's still so much brokenness in our world. Injustice rolls down our streets like a flood. Hunger and poverty sweep people away. Abuse runs rampant. Right, just a, a few weeks ago, we witnessed multiple mass shootings within just days of each other. Right, there's so much hurt still in our world. And our adversary is crouching around every corner. And yet sometimes our lives can be situated in a way that we don't even feel most of that. Right? But, but what fasting does is even in our comfort, right, it disrupts it and it situates us in God's story to know that glory is already but not yet. In this way, fasting humbles us to stand alongside the poor and afflicted among us. It is a way in which even the rich and the comfortable can receive the commendation, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right in our fasting, right, it is a quiet revolution against the kingdom of this world that is solely between you and your God. How countercultural that is, right? It's not the loud public thing, it's the quiet thing that is done between you and God. And when Jesus had finished speaking with the Samaritan woman, and she went to tell her neighbors about her expectations with him, Jesus' disciple came along. And they told him, Rabbi, eat something. We haven't seen you eat anything. And Jesus 
responds with a beautiful phrase. He says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they said, we haven't seen you eat anything all day, right? The disciples in there just always missing it, right? Like us, right? He says, my meat is to do the will of my father. This is why we anoint our head and wash our face, because even in the midst of the world's brokenness, we can see God at work and it fills us in a way that nothing can. Our manner of fasting matters because to do it right is to demonstrate the story correctly. Jesus here ministering to this woman who is deeply broken. And not only is he literally sitting beside her in her loneliness and brokenness all the while in the quiet of his heart, he's fasting. He's with her physically and in his fasting, he is sympathizing with her weakness, as the writer of Hebrews would say. And in this encounter, he has a lesson for the 12 and a lesson for us, right? That there is something in life that is more satisfying than a meal. Something that is better than feeling the satisfaction of quenching your hunger and your thirst. And it is having an intimate relationship with the Father and being about his work. That's the reward, Right. When you fast in the quiet of your heart, when you say no to your belly and your desires so that you can say yes to God and you give up something that you need so that you can relish the one that you need most. Jesus says that your father who sees in secret will reward you more and more. We begin to see that the mud is mud and our appetites for something greater grows within us. And through practice, we begin to come to understand that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what do we, what do, we do with this, this practice, right? Perhaps you are new to the practice of fasting. And, you know, as a, as a church, we've been encouraged to adopt three practices throughout this series, right, of morning prayer and evening silence and Wednesday fast. And that might be a great place to start, right, if you haven't already. And I'd encourage you to, to think about what could this look like for you this week, right? What could you ex- maybe expect from that time in fasting? And what should you be aiming for during the time of your fast? First, I'd encourage you to remember that it is called a practice because it takes practice, right? Think about the first time you ever learned a new skill, right? Doing it right the first time may feel uncomfortable, but as you continue in it, Right. You grow in your ability to exercise it. Right. I I coached basketball for fifth and sixth graders who had never touched a basketball in their life. Some of them, I don't think they ever saw basketball in their life. And so just trying to teach them the proper shooting form. Right. Bend your knees, elbows in like that's very uncomfortable when you first pick up a ball and you do this. Right. Like if that's your that's your first instinct. Those mechanics are difficult, but as they do it over and over and over again, it becomes more natural, right? I'd encourage you in that that time of our practice, right, that we not beat ourselves up on all of the shots we miss, but celebrate the ones that we make and continue to push forward in the practice. Second, sometimes less is more, right? If If you've never ran before your first run, maybe shouldn't be a marathon. Likewise, if you never fasted before, maybe 40 days and 40 nights might not be the ideal starting point, right? Uh, just got to work our way there, right? 
But Jesus says, right, the beautiful part about when he says, when you fast, right, not only is he assuming that we practice, but he's also not setting expectations on how long and how often, right? He says that the emphasis is not in the frequency or in the length, right? That's what the hypocrites were more focused on. But rather, it's about the manner in which you fast when you do, right? The objective is to grow in intimacy with God and to train ourselves to seek him when we are empty rather than other things. Like the song we just sang, right, that when we, are, when we are alone and when we are without, that we would not be clinging to the things of this world, but that we would say, give me Jesus. Lastly, remember that fasting is just as much about what you do with your fast as it is about what you're not doing during your fast. Right, to abstain from food and to go about your day indulging the flesh in other ways still misses the spirit of the fast. If we consider the rest of Isaiah's prophecy concerning the people's fast, we can glean some ideas of what holistic fasting actually looks like. Right after God tells them why he was displeased with their fast, he tells them about the kind of fast that he takes pleasure in. He says, it's not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor in your house and when you see them naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Similarly to Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman, our activity during our fast should consist of being about the will of the Father and not our own. This is what Jesus is inviting us to, church. He is inviting us to experience a kind of intimacy with God that will transform us from the inside out, that will transform our appetites. But he wants it to be between you and him. A quiet revolution against the kingdom of this world solely between you and your God that fills the inner man with the sustenance that only can come from him. And when asked in a world full of brokenness, where things doesn't go our way, where right, sickness plagues us, where there's division, where there's pain and suffering, what is it that anoints your head and washes your countenance so? You may respond as our Savior did and say, I have a meat to eat that you know not of. Something that is done in the secret and quiet of my heart only before my God. Let us pray. God, may that, may that just be the declaration of our hearts for all eternity. Give me Jesus. Lord God, I don't want to want other things more than I want you. Lord, would you convict us of where that is in our heart, Lord God? Would you show us where our hearts have flirted too much with the things of this world and where we need to let go in order that we may cling to you and relish in the one that we need most? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that, right, as we try and attempt to, to practice something so countercultural 
to our society, Lord God, that this is, this is something that does just not come natural to us today, Lord. I pray that you would honor our obedience and meet us where we are. Lord, I pray for those right, who, who, who may struggle hearing this topic. I pray that you would meet them where they are. Lord God, I pray that as we seek to have more of you and as we seek to be filled by you, Lord God, that you would grant us that reward, that you would become enough for us. And Father, I also just pray in eager anticipation of the day when all of our feasting, all of our fasting will go away and there'll be nothing left but feast. Lord, when you will return and like your disciples who are sitting with you, Lord, that there will be no need to fast because the bridegroom will be with us and he will abide in our midst and he will be our God and we will be your people. Lord, I pray that you will bring that day. But until then, I pray that we will continue to fight the good fight. Lord God, that we will continue to practice that quiet revolution of saying no to this world so that we could say yes to you. Meet us and be with us, God. We praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.